Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to this very topical podcast, which looks to unpick the recent events in the banking sector. I'm Chris Fleming, one of the portfolio managers at Square Mile, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Bowie, partner and portfolio manager of the 24 Corporate Bond Fund. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for taking the time to join us today in what has become a very intriguing time in the markets, particularly the bond market, which I'm sure you're really excited about. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. No problem. It's great to have you here. Um, so. What's been happening in the banking sector? Uh, so let's wind back a couple of weeks and talk about where it really started. Sure. So it really started with very small community banks in the US. If we first or we go rewind really back to the financial crisis in 2008, that was caused by banks becoming insolvent, i.e. having liabilities greater than their assets, and then also having a liquidity crisis. Since then, we've had huge waves of regulation. We've had changes of management, different issuance structures, bond structures that we'll talk about later. And really, we got to a position where banks had improved themselves so much over the last 15 years that they were actually being regarded now as quite low-risk investments. And global banking regulation had really changed the landscape. However, there was a very small subsector of the banking universe in the US, Silicon Valley Bank specifically was, they were literally taking so much money in the door, they didn't know what to do with it. Deposits were building so fast and they couldn't create loans on the other side of that to use up that deposit money that they started buying risky government bonds. And with those risky government bonds, they had quite large losses because last year was the worst year for the bond market that has been in living memory. And the yields on these bonds rose so much that that then created big capital losses and they were hiding these capital losses because they didn't have to mark these positions to market. And what ultimately happened was they started having a run on their liquidity, a deposit run, and then they had to start selling these bonds. And of course, when they sold them, they then had to instantly recognize those losses. And those losses then made the bank insolvent. But the risks they'd been running were way out of line with the size of their balance sheet. And unlike risks that any European or large US bank is allowed to run. So they were essentially taking a bit of a flyer on the bond market in the worst year for bonds we've seen in at least the last 30 years. And it went badly wrong. And so they, they went bust, essentially. Okay. Interesting. And was there an issue here with concentration as well in terms of the, the type and spread of client they actually had? Exactly. So if you think of any European bank, they'll have a range of depositors, um, whereas in Silicon Valley Bank's case, it was all tech companies who had had some issues through um, crypto and losses through that. But also they were very concentrated in terms of their economic sensitivity, but also very correlated in terms of their behavior. So when some of them started taking their deposits out, that then led to a chain reaction where mm. they all got on in the same trade, they all took the money out, and we had an immediate liquidity crisis on top of a solvency crisis for that bank. Yeah. And then we, we roll on a week or so to Credit Suisse and somewhat bad timing and a different set of circumstances. But you know, what, was the, what was the basis for that, really? Yes. So the unusual thing with Credit Suisse was, in my view, and in many people's view, it wasn't an insolvent bank. It was fundamentally sound. It had a very strong balance sheet but it had been loss-making over the last few years. And ultimately, what caused the downfall was a liquidity crisis. But all of the banking regulation that was put in place in Europe after 2008 was really designed to keep banks 
that were fundamentally solvent alive even if there was a liquidity crisis and what was very unusual in this case was the Swiss regulator only gave a kind of half-hearted support from a liquidity perspective for Credit Suisse in the days immediately before its downfall mm. and then over the course of the weekend they then subsequently changed the law to say that because we've given you immediate, immediate liquidity support that counts as something called a point of non-viability mm -hmm. which then allowed them in turn to um, crystallize losses through bondholders yeah. rather than equity holders, which we've never seen before. So this is turning into the AT1s that you hear about or, or COCOs, which um, are known in, in the industry. So a, a sort of a popular hybrid investment, aren't they? Uh, I mean, so what, what's just briefly to explain what are AT1s, AT1s rather, and, and, and what's their history? Because they were a, an output of the financial crisis, really, weren't they, I think? Uh, absolutely. So AT1s, that's short for additional tier ones. They're also known as COCOs, which is short for contingent convertible bonds. What that means is these are the, the most junior bonds you can invest in in a bank. In fact, they are particularly risky and they're so risky, in fact, that retail investors are not allowed to buy them directly. They can only access them through corporate bond funds. And these bonds were issued out of the financial crisis partly to make sure that in future, if any bank gets into trouble, the resolution of that will not be a draw on taxpayer funds. So through 2008, we had many banks bailed out by the taxpayer. And as a result, banking regulation was changed to say, we don't want this to happen again. We don't want the taxpayer to be on the hook. So let's design some new securities that are designed to absorb losses if these banks get into trouble. And in exchange for this higher risk, that they could be converted into equity or to, or to nothing, you get paid a much higher coupon on these bonds. So these are within the bond universe, the highest risk banking bonds you can buy. And they are specifically designed so that if the bank gets into trouble, these bonds get written down, giving that bank the chance to reduce its liabilities and therefore become technically solvent when otherwise they might be insolvent if they've had big losses in their banking book, for example. If they've made lots of bad loans, they make huge losses, theoretically these bonds can be written down to zero, and then those liabilities are removed from the balance sheet, making that institution solvent again, and therefore can survive and can keep paying money back to depositors, for example. Are we going to see this go to the courts, do you think? Do you think there's going to be bondholders, and it's going to be a long, drawn-out affair, which will take years, no doubt? Absolutely, yes, because in this case, there was an immediate change to the law on that Sunday yes. that the write-down happened. And that's a moving of the goalposts that no one had expected. And I think that's ultimately where the legal risk for Switzerland lies now, because up to that point, liquidity support for banks had been frequently given to many banks and had not resulted in a point of non-viability. But on that particular Sunday, that was used as the, the reason for the, the point of non-viability being met and therefore the bonds being written down. So I think this will drag on through the courts for many years. Um, ultimately, I wouldn't be that optimistic that bondholders will receive much recompense. And was there any further impact to the, the, the more senior bond part of the market? I mean, they, you know, spreads probably widened. and Actually, no, actually. They did write initially on the Monday, but as soon as both the European Banking Authority and then the Bank of England came out and, and reiterated what everyone else had understood, which is that these are the most junior bonds, 
but they should still always get paid out ahead of an equity liquidation. That then settled the market again, and then senior bonds have actually performed quite well. Mm. So senior has been relatively unimpacted. It's been 81s and cocoa bonds that have dropped the most in the last couple of weeks. And I can imagine, given the long drawn out process of these legal challenges, is it having any? Do you think it'll have any longer term impact on the bond markets, and particularly corporate bonds and and issued by banks? Not specifically outside Switzerland. So I think because we had such a swift set of comments from both European banking authorities and the ECB and the Bank of England saying, "Look, this is not how it works in our jurisdiction. In our world, equity gets written down first. And then bondholders start being written down, but only after equity holders go first. But we've had this very strange outcome in Switzerland where three billion Swiss francs was paid back to Credit Suisse equity holders over and above the cocoa bondholders. That's never been seen before. Now, technically, within the legal covenants of the bond, that is allowed, but it has never been seen before. And it really has been a new precedent in finance. And we have seen since then that other Swiss cocoa bonds, for example, from UBS, have underperformed the wider cocoa market. So it is definitely having an impact on the most junior bonds that you can buy from a bank. But for more senior bonds, it doesn't seem to be having an impact. So I guess this um, is an interesting challenge, not that they didn't have one already, from central bank policymakers in terms of how they manage interest rates going forward um you know i've heard you know pundits in the market say this has been equivalent of a a one percent increase in interest rates in terms of controlling inflation could you perhaps explain why that might be perceived to be the case and what it means for banking generally absolutely so across economies the level of interest rates really does drive a lot of economic activity or curtail a lot of economic activity. And what happens with central banks is they set the base rate, as it's known in the UK, or the federal funds rate, as it's known in the US, or the repo rate, as it's known in the Eurozone. And from that, that sets the tone for interest rates everywhere in the real economy, depending on how much credit risk you take. And what normally happens, like we saw last year, is central banks in their attempt to choke off inflation, have aggressively taken base rates higher. You know, in the UK, we went from almost zero on base rates to now 4% on base rates. Mm. So that's a 4% rise, which is historically a very large rise in a single year. That then affects things like mortgage rates or credit card rates or loan rates for you know, an auto loan, for example. But there's something else that's important, which is credit availability or the willingness of banks to extend credit, despite what the level of the rate is. And what we've seen since the banking crisis is a fear that it's not just the price of money now that will be important, but also the access to credit, the availability of credit is now going to be turned down because the banking sector is more worried about risk generally. So that means even if you can afford the rate, you might not be able to get that car loan or that credit card that you wanted mm. because the bank says, well, I'm actually going to take a much more prudent approach to lending now and therefore credit availability is going to be lower. And that potentially could have a big read across to slower economic growth or potentially a recession being deeper than it might have been otherwise. Okay. And does it mean that we're, we're necessarily heading towards some form of banking crisis? I 
I don't think it does because I feel banks have become so strongly capitalized and so well regulated since the financial mm. crisis that the risks of another European banking collapse are very small. They're not zero because there's always the risk of a deposit run. Yeah. And we could see that leading to other liquidity problems. But I think the European regulators are on top of this and will provide emergency liquidity support like they have several times in the last 15 years and technically solvent, which all UK banks that we look at certainly are, then that would mean they should be able to withstand the liquidity crisis. And even if they need emergency liquidity support, that should not then lead to an ultimate write down on their bonds. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for. The mean old marketing department have given me a tight deadline, which probably means I need to wrap things up. But um, thanks very much, Chris. It's been um, very, very interesting. I'd, I'd like to keep chatting for longer. Um, and But again, thank you for taking time out of your very uh, busy schedule. It's, it's much appreciated. And thanks to all those who have, who have listened in. Hopefully you found this informative, but this is obviously a very fluid situation. So please get in contact with us if you have any further questions. Many thanks. Goodbye. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, the 28th of March, 2023. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. Square Mile Investment Service Limited make no warranty or representation regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This information represents the views and broadcasts of Square Mile Investment Services at the date of issue but may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Square Mile Investment Services does not offer investment advice or make recommendations regarding investments and nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute financial or investment advice in any way and shall not constitute a regulated activity for the purposes of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. This podcast shall not constitute or be deemed to constitute an invitation or inducement to any person to engage in investment activity and is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Should you undertake any investment activity based on information contained herein, you do so entirely at your own risk and Square Mile Investment Services shall have no liability whatsoever for any loss, damage or costs or expenses incurred or suffered by you as a result. Square Mile Investment Services does not accept any responsibility for errors, inaccuracies, omissions or any inconsistencies herein. Square Mile Investment Service Limited is registered in England and Wales 08743370 and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FRN 625562. Thank you.